Six Heroes of Planetary Defense, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Are we making progress toward avoiding the fate of the dinosaurs? That was the theme when I welcomed an international group of experts for the only public event at this year's Planetary Defense Conference. You'll hear their very encouraging reports on today's show, and we'll talk about what's ahead, including the first mission to test asteroid deflection. One of those experts is our own Bruce Betts. He'll stay with us for a Planetary Defense-centered edition of What's Up, including the return of the rubber asteroid of doom. I'm very grateful to everyone who took a moment to rate and review Planetary Radio in Apple Podcasts. I'm even more grateful to all of you who subscribed. No worries if you haven't gotten around to it. The cosmos and I are patient. Even giant planets have reason to worry about asteroid and comet impacts. Take a look at what Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 did to Jupiter in 1994. Ouch. You'll find the image at the top of the May 7 edition of the Downlink. Great space headlines, too, though Mars Helicopter Ingenuity has now completed a fifth flight across the Red Planet. I hope you'll join us for next week's show when I'll welcome back Ingenuity Project Manager Mimi Ong. And there's much more than news at planetary.org downlink. Our friends at Explore Mars have scheduled the very first Mars Innovation Forum for May 25 to 27, and they've lined up a terrific collection of Red Planet All-Stars for this virtual event. I'll be moderating a session called Building and Creating on Mars, but I look forward to hearing all the great conversations. You can check it out and register at exploremars.org. The four-day 2021 Planetary Defense Conference ended on April 30th. Like so many other Like so many other regular gatherings this year, participants had to meet online. This limitation doesn't seem to have limited the impressive agenda or the presentations by scores of leaders from around the world. As you'll hear, it once again included a carefully designed exercise, a simulation of an encounter with an asteroid that was as exciting as any movie and far more instructive The Planetary Society was once again a primary sponsor of the PDC. Each of our six outstanding panelists today had a great story to tell. You'll hear them introduced as we present these excerpts that are no more than teasers, I'm afraid. You can hear the entire hour in the deluxe version of this week's show at planetary.org slash radio. Here's your taste of the program we called Earthlings vs. Asteroids. What's the score? I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, where I host our public radio series and podcast, Planetary Radio. We come to you today as part of the International Astronautical Academy's 2021 Planetary Defense Conference. It is the seventh biannual gathering of experts and policymakers from all over our pale blue dot. We'll hear from six of these passionate defenders of Earth. Think of this as a status report. By the end of the hour, we hope you'll have a better feel for what's being done to make sure that humanity doesn't go the way of the dinosaurs. Kelly Fast is the Program Manager for Near-Earth Object Observations Programs in NASA's 
Planetary Defense Coordination Office, where she works with the Planetary Defense Officer at NASA, Lindley Johnson. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, Matt. Thank you. What is the first order of business if we want to learn how to defend our planet from big rocks that might come our way? Well, the first order of business for planetary defense is to find the near-Earth asteroids and the near-Earth objects, uh, any asteroids or comets that come into Earth's neighborhood and to figure out where they've been and where they're going to be in the future. If we don't know that something could pose an impact threat, then we can't take all of these other steps that you're going to hear about today also. So the first order of business is to find them. No doubt. Like our other panelists, you have uh, some slides that we're going to zip through, beginning with uh, this impressive collection of telescopes. Do they begin to give us an idea of what's being done at NASA to to find the NEOs that we don't know about yet? Oh, absolutely. This is the the bread and butter of, uh, of planetary defense, just surveying the skies, looking for that moving point of light against the stars. And so these telescopes provided by uh, a number of institutions that are funded through NASA's program uh, are doing this every night, surveying the skies, looking for objects uh, or looking for uh, natural objects that might not already be in the catalog. And uh, these telescopes are provided by uh, the University of Hawaii with the PanStar survey and the U University of Arizona with Catalina Sky Survey. They're the kind of the most productive of the surveys being funded by NASA right now, producing most of the discoveries, but also complementing them uh, are the Atlas telescopes from the University of Hawaii. Also, uh, nice interagency coordination here with the U.S. Space Force on their space surveillance telescope and pulling asteroids out of the images that they take at night. Finally, uh, even repurposing a telescope that was developed for another purpose. Uh, NEOWISE is the repurposed uh, WISE uh, space telescope that is now full-time surveying for asteroids. wasn't designed to do that, but it's kind of a good pathfinder on the way to, to how to do this properly from space. And it's producing a lot of characterization information, size information about asteroids in the catalog. And then we, uh, there are also many other observatories funded by the program involved in following up these discoveries and trying to make sure there's enough information to calculate the orbits to know where these objects are going to be in the future. Congress gave NASA a goal to uh, find 90% of the near-Earth asteroids that are 140 meters and larger in size. Now we want to find all of them that our telescopes can detect. But this is a size range that would really pose a, a regional threat should uh, an object of that size impact Earth. So it's, it's kind of a good, good benchmark to go after. And the folks who do all the modeling are able to estimate that there's probably about 25,000 of those objects out there. We're only uh, about 40% of the way through, uh, but still plugging away every night. Uh, at the current discovery rate, it is going to take more than 30 years to complete the survey. But there are uh, efforts to look at next generation uh, telescopes to speed this up. But again, those telescopes, they are just uh, plugging away every night. This pathfinding that I mentioned, like from the NEOWISE telescope, and, and also from a number of uh, studies done with the community, including with the National Academy of Sciences, all of them point toward the need to put a telescope in space and that it should have infrared capability in order to be able to yield size information and also to get these uh, discoveries of asteroids that might be very dark in color and harder to pick up from uh, telescopes on the ground that are looking in the optical and what our eyes can see. And something might be very large, but if it's very dark in color, it might be very faint and hopefully not. But 
if there is something that poses uh, an impact threat to Earth, to discover it many, many years uh, ahead of time, decades ahead of time. Right now in the Planetary Defense Conference, uh, we are dealing with an asteroid scenario of a fictional uh, asteroid that was discovered only six months prior to impact and wrestling with those issues. We don't want to find ourselves in that type of a scenario. And so there are many reasons for then looking at what is the best way to speed up the survey and to uh, make sure that we have lots of time. And so this is what NASA is working on. Gerhard Drosshagen chairs the Space Mission Planning Advisory Group. Formerly of the European Space Agency, Gerhard now joins us from the University of Oldenburg. It's important to find objects that could pose a threat to Earth. But then it's the next question, what could you do? And of course, uh, one idea is to just move them out of the way to prevent a potential collision with Earth. And that's why this international group, Space Mission Planning Advisory Group, has been established because any impact risk is global and it needs an international effort to try to do something. And this group gets together and discusses what can be done with a space mission if the object is real big and real threatening to avoid an impact. Uh, let's go now to Paul Chodas. Paul is manager of the Near Earth Object Program Office. He's based at the Jet Propulsion Lab, very close to where I am right now at uh, Planetary Society headquarters. Thanks for joining us, Paul. How many NEOs are we keeping track of? There are increasing numbers, 25,000 and more. Um, we're finding about 2,500 of, of these NEOs every year now. So the observatories that Kelly showed at the beginning um, are very productive. But the question then is, uh, are any, do any of these pose a threat? So the group I work in, CNEOS uh, at JPL, um, is charged with the, the idea of figuring out what the orbits are of these asteroids and whether or not they have a chance of impacting the Earth. So we do an impact assessment on each one of these. One more thing that uh, you have to tell us about, uh, even though the Planetary Defense Conference is virtual this year, it still has my favorite part of the conference every year. It is the Planetary Defense Conference exercise, which as I said, you are sort of the mastermind of. Tell us a little bit, just a little bit about this. Yeah, I, I've been nicknamed the threat master in previous years. Um, I devise a hypothetical case with a certain specified warning. In this case, we had six months between the time the asteroid was discovered and the time when it could hit. And uh, we go through uh, the question of what would we know when? And then we kind of inform the decision makers of what the uncertainty levels are. So there's a lot of talk about probabilities of this and regions of possible impact. And this example is uh, from our exercise where the region of possible impact covers uh, Central Europe in this case. So then we would uh, present this uh, image to decision makers and they would consider, well, what would we do? Is mitigation possible? Are space missions possible? And what about the disaster management? Um, how, how would you handle this situation? Now, in this case, it was many months before impacts, but the uncertainties are very difficult to deal with in decision making. And as the impact got closer and closer, this region shrank, of course, but then, of course, there's less time to react. We are now honored to welcome Masaki Fujimoto. Masaki is Deputy Director General of the Japanese Space Agency's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science. He has joined us from Japan where, uh, Masaki, I believe it is just past midnight. Thank you for staying up uh, so late to join us. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Congratulations on the recent magnificent success of Hayabusa 2, JAXA's second spacecraft to return uh, pristine asteroid material to eager scientists on Earth. Where were you when that sample return capsule streaked through the sky on uh, just the 5th of December last year? Yes, I was in Umera where the capsule landed. But even though I was in, I was in the place where, where the capsule landed, I was staring into my PC screen when, the, when you guys were enjoying the fireball running across the sky. <laughs> well, I've only seen the video, but it's pretty impressive. Those samples, I don't know if they're being distributed yet, but eventually those are going to go to labs all over the world, aren't they? Yes, yes. So now we're doing the, we're performing the initial curation until uh, June this year. And then for one year, we will perform the initial analysis, like a pre preliminary examination, so that we can, we can uh, create a catalog Scientists all over the world will understand the science, science potential of the samples. And then starting next summer, we will be distribu distributing the sample to all the scientists interested in analyzing the samples. So they will send the send, submit the propose, proposal to us, and then there will be an AO process. And the selected scientists will have the opportunity. Nancy Chabot is coordination lead for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, DART, at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. So as we've talked about, uh, DART is a NASA mission to demonstrate this kinetic impactor technology. And what that means is pretty simply, we're going to launch a spacecraft and we're going to target a small asteroid and slam the spacecraft into it. Um, and what this is going to do is it's going to give that asteroid that little nudge that we talked about already, um, just sort of uh, adds up to a change in the asteroid's future path and deflect it. So this is the as a mission to demonstrate this kinetic impactor technology to deflect an asteroid. Um, DART stands for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. The T is for test, very important. This is just a test, it's the first step. This is not an asteroid that's a threat to hit the Earth or on a path to hit the Earth. We're taking this first test step in order to do this technology. And before I go too much further, I really want to say, too, that DART is a team. Um, so I'm really happy to be here today and talk about DART and share DART. But we have hundreds of people at work at APL on this right now. We also have our partner institutions, which bring together. We have scientists around the world who are participating in to make this mission a reality and this success. So it really does take this international collaboration and hundreds of people working to make a mission like this um, on a path to do this first test. What I want to say too is that this is really the ideal target to do this first test is this Didymos system. So the double asteroid uh, redirection test goes to a double asteroid system here. So there's the big asteroid Didymos, and then Dimorphos, the smaller asteroid, goes around Didymos every 11 hours and 55 minutes, like clockwork. And we know this because telescopes on the Earth have been observing it for years. And so we know this very precisely from all of these measurements that have been done by the Earth based telescopes. And so what's going to happen is the DART spacecraft's going to come screaming in, actually, 6.6 .6 kilometers per second, 15,000 miles per hour, um, slam into mm. Dimorphos. Um, a few days uh, before that, Licia Cube, which is the light Italian cube set uh, for imaging of asteroids contributed by the Italian Space Agency, will get uh, kicked off. And Licia Cube will get some spectacular images of this impact event from DART. Fantastic. Thank you, Nancy. You know our last panelist is my partner in the What's Up segment. 
of Planetary Radio for over 18 years now. He is the chief scientist for the Planetary Society and the uh, program manager for our LightSail 2 CubeSat that is still up there catching some rays. Welcome, Bruce Betts. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you as usual. Tell us about the big announcement that you made on behalf of the Planetary Society this week, uh, using the PDC as the background. Uh, we've announced another round of our Gene Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grant Program, which uh, funds astronomers, amateur and professional around the world. You can see a display of where we've funded over the last 24 years. And we fund them to upgrade their observatories in whether it be a new camera or re-illuminizing a mirror or making them more robotically controlled so they can get more data. And uh, although now most of the professional surveys, as Kelly noted, discover most of the near-Earth objects, there's still a need for lots of observations from lots of places for follow-up observations that give uh, position on the sky so that uh, people like Paul Chodas can calculate orbits and figure out whether it's going to hit Earth. And then also characterization of these over time and observing them, things like light curves, brightness with time, so you can figure out their spin rate or whether one asteroid is actually two, like DART will go explore a binary system. Um, and also what they're made of, things that you'll need to know if uh, you are going to have to deflect them at some point. So we have just announced an open call for proposals. They're due at the end of July. And uh, you can find out more at planetary.org slash NEO grants. Thank you, panelists, for everything that you are doing and will be doing in the future to help prepare humanity to um, defend this beautiful planet that we all share. We also want to thank all of you out there who joined us uh, for this public event today. We will, I hope, see you in two years at the 8th Planetary Defense Conference. Again, almost my entire conversation with Bruce Betts, Nancy Shabo, Paul Chodas, Gerhard Drolshagen, Kelly Fast, and Masaki Fujimoto is at planetary.org slash radio. Want to see our great panelists, their slides? Want to see our great panelists, their slides and videos? Drop by planetary.org slash live. But not just yet, because Bruce and What's Up are moments away. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, I'm Kate from the Planetary Society. For all its troubles, 2020 has still seen some terrific space accomplishments. We asked our members and supporters to vote for their 2020 favorites. You can see the results at planetary.org slash best of 2020. We're talking about the best solar system image, the most exciting moment in planetary science, and much more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2020. Happy holidays from the Planetary Society. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio, fresh from the Planetary Defense Conference, uh, where uh, they saved the Earth, I believe. The chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Batts, congratulations. Well, it was an exercise. Things could have 
worked out better. But the real Earth is fine and has good views of the night sky. So um, I got a lot to say. So I'm just going to skip to that if you don't mind. But I'm so curious because Paul Chodas didn't tell us the end of the exercise. Was Central Europe wiped out? I can neither confirm nor deny the wiping out of Central Europe. It was an exercise. It was a very, very challenging exercise, as Paul probably discussed with you. He was truly devious, and but it got people thinking about those uh, really complex things where you don't have enough time. The real bottom line is you need the observation so you have the time, because if you don't have the time, you're, you're, you just are so limited in what you can do other than evacuate. It's hard to evacuate all of Central Europe. See, I'm glad you didn't go straight to the sky, but now we're ready to go up there. Okay, uh, we got planets. We got all the visible naked eye planets are visible, although Venus is really tough. It's uh, super bright, but it's very low in the west shortly after sunset. Mercury is above it, not as bright, but a little higher up for the next few weeks. And they are coming closer together. Venus will get higher and easier to see. Mercury will get lower. They will be a half degree apart on May 28th. That's uh, about the width of the full moon. Speaking of the moon, it will be hanging out near Venus and on the 12th, though, again, very tough to see, and that's right after this comes out. The 13th, hanging out with Mercury, the 15th with Mars. Mars is up in the southwest looking reddish in Gemini. And then in the pre-dawn, we've got Jupiter and Saturn, very easy to see now in the east, southeast, uh, and the moon will hang out with Saturn on the 31st, Jupiter on the 1st. <sighs> but wait. Don't order yet. The best is yet to come. I've got a total lunar eclipse I've arranged for you. Actually, I won't claim arranging it because half the world will be mad at me for skipping them. Uh, Total lunar eclipse, May 26th, thanks to uh, International Dateline. It's May 26th, wherever you are, centered basically on the Pacific Ocean. So if you're in Eastern Asia, Uh, Australia, New Zealand, you'll be able to see it starting in the evening of the 26th. And if you're in the Eastern Pacific, as we are, Matt, uh, you'll be able to see it in the pre-dawn skies. And if uh, you're very far off that center, you, you won't be able to see it. And if you're in Europe, well, there'll be more. There'll be others. Just be glad you survived the uh, exercise if you're in Europe. (laughs) God. Just be glad this is only a test. Should this have been a real asteroid impact? Well, let's make sure there's not one. Okay? We move on to... Man, I thought it would never end. I thought it'd gone farther, but I just figured everyone would already hate me. So, I like this one. The Perseverance Mars rover. You've probably heard of this. It is about the same mass as the car, the Chevy Spark. It only weighs currently 38% of a Chevy Spark since all Chevy Sparks are on Earth. The one Perseverance is in Mars gravity, but their mass is about the same. I was going to say something about the Chevy Spark, but uh, I don't want to get in trouble with General Motors, so I won't. (laughs) That's interesting. I've heard it compared to a golf cart. I guess you could compare the Spark to a golf cart as well. Yeah, it's hard to find a, a car that's uh, that low a mass, but it's uh, it's massive, dude. And the spark is not. Good on you, Chevy. <laughs> so much for that sponsorship. <laughs> we move on rapidly to the trivia contest. 
And after that comment, I think you won't be surprised when we find out who the asteroid Kaplan was not named for, but we will find out who the asteroid Kaplan was named after. How'd we do, Matt? Got a really nice response. A whole bunch of very sympathetic listeners. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll hear from a few of them, but uh, first, tell us, who is it named after? It is named after Cousin Samuel. Uncle Sam. <laughs> Your Uncle Sam, who ironically, perhaps, is a Russian-Soviet uh, astronomer, Samuel Aronovich Kaplan, lived from 1921 to 1978. He was a Russian astronomer and astrophysicist at Lyov University Observatory in the Ukraine and at the Radiophysical Research Institute in Nizhny Novgorod in Russia. Uh, he did a bunch of you know, astronomy stuff with white dwarfs and uh, solar radiation pulsars, that kind of stuff. Are we related? A lot of you wondered. I don't know. I've never had a genealogy study or DNA or anything like that. I don't know that he probably didn't either. Uh, maybe a descendant of his. Yeah, I'm guessing he didn't have a DNA test at that time. Okay, go ahead. Robert Johannesson in Norway discovered the same thing you did, that uh, this Kaplan, that Kaplan, I should say, worked at the Radio Physical Research Institute, where they do research in the fields of radio, radio astronomy, radio engineering. <laughs> you, you see where I'm going here. So radio. <laughs> it, it unites all the Kaplans of the world. Yeah, I'll tell you, yeah, that's the apple doesn't fall far from the, from the Institute, I guess. Here's our winner. She's a first-timer, Jennifer Dobbins, in uh, the state of Florida, which is a state of mine. Jennifer, congratulations. You got it right with Samuel uh, Aronovich Kaplan. And I believe that Jennifer has won the last copy of the new Pocket Atlas of Mars, uh, which is that terrific little book, <laughs> little pocket book. It's, it'd have to be a big pocket, but it's uh, it's still kind of pocket-sized. Assembled by uh, Henrik Hargitay. Jennifer, I bet you'll be able to get a little cutout, a little overlay of the state of Florida that you can use on these beautiful maps. I'm looking at mine of California right now that I can see right through. Uh, also from Europlanet, the central European hub. And that's uh, the last one of those that we're going to give away. You may be able to guess what we're going to give away in the new contest. Finally, this uh, major bit of hope from Edwin King in the UK. Hang in there, Matt. You might get an exoplanet. Ooh. <laughs> Why stop there? Let's violate all the rules and uh, <laughs> give you maybe a dwarf planet uh, in the solar system. That'd uh, be appropriate, wouldn't it? Or, yeah. or we could rename Uranus. I mean, everyone's always been uncomfortable with that in the English-speaking world. So let's, uh, it was supposed to be named after King George. Let's name it after King Matt. I guess if it's my planet, I guess I would be royalty there. So I think that's appropriate. And we'd be happy to send you there if we possibly can. Yes, yes, I should have known. We're ready. You're so ready. Coming back to near-Earth asteroids, here's your task. Name all the near-Earth asteroids that spacecraft have touched. Oh. All the near-Earth asteroids that spacecraft have touched. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Ooh, be careful with this one, everybody. You have until the 19th, that'd be Wednesday, May 19, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. And have you guessed it? I got your near-Earth asteroid right here. It's made out of rubber. 
and it could be yours if uh, if random.org picks you and you've got the right answer for this one. Keep those uh, cards and letters coming. And uh, Rubber Asteroid here. Matt Kaplan, the prize on this week's Planetary Radio. Matt Danger Kaplan. I like that. I think I'm going to change my middle name. Say goodnight, Bruce. Good night, Bruce. Ha <laughs> ha. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what around your house you would like to name Matt Kaplan. We used to have a dog house, which <laughs> would have been appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> then it would just be confusing because Matt would always be in the mat. He's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and he's always right here with us inside What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who are just trying to save the world. Mark Hilverdez, our associate producer, Josh Doyle, composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro. Astro.